This is Inside Marketing, brought to you by Dentsu Aegis Network and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome to Inside Marketing. Today we are going to talk about search and the evolution of search because it's a really interesting space. Um, I'm joined today by Dave O'Reardon, who's head of paid search at Dentsu. Welcome, Dave. Hey, Dave. Hi, Dave. I'm also joined by Maeve Larkin, who's Agency Development Manager for Google Solutions Team in Ireland. Welcome, Maeve. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. No problem. Thanks for joining me. Um, first things first, how is everybody? Maeve, how are you? How's working from home? Are you, are you finding it easy to adapt? Well, you're adapted by now, but are you still enjoying it? Or do you can't wait to get back into the office? Yeah, I'm very well, thanks. Um, yeah, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. I mean, I'm pretty used to it by now. We've been here for you know since March, and I think we'll be here for a little bit longer. But um Missing the office, missing the office perks, missing the teammates, but, you know, can't complain. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'd imagine, I I can well imagine you're missing the perks in Google offices. We don't have (laughs) quite have the same perks in Dentsu days, but um, are you missing the office, Dave? How are you getting on? Definitely, yeah. Missing the coffee anyway, for sure. Um, Yeah, used to it at this stage, but looking forward to having some bit of office interaction again, whenever that may be, hopefully soon. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like it. Now, so I got, I struggled at the start and then, because again, I I just didn't know how long we're going to be in this, but I'm adapted now and I I quite easily do a hybrid model of a few days in, a few days at home, because it had its benefits too. So, but yeah, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about the evolution of search. And Dave, you wrote an article in today's Irish Times about exactly that. And when we think about it, I read the article, it's a brilliant read and I'd urge um, anyone listening to check it out. Like it's not much longer than 20 years ago that Google was a thesis project and today has a market valuation of over a trillion dollars. It's absolutely incredible growth. And you talk about in the article, you talk about the fact that it's not just the market cap that's grown, the functionality around search has changed, the technology behind it has evolved and it's become highly sophisticated. So within that, you wrote that the way we search and our search behaviors have changed. So can you talk a little bit about that for a minute? And if you do look at the last 15 years, there's been interesting changes in certain keywords in relation to the expectation of both the searcher and the search engine. So the way we search has changed over time. Take restaurants near me and cheap versus best are two good examples of keywords that have basically been made redundant, not by not by Google or, or by Microsoft, but by people searching um, or not searching, as the case may be for those keywords. So now the result reflects that with the standalone keyword like restaurant automatically shows restaurants in your area you don't need to add the modifier and Mm. then cheap is another good one where it's replaced by best so we've kind of come to expect that this is taken that cheap is taken into account when you do ask for best so again that's something that you see if you look at keyword trends and keyword data over the last 15 years it's dropped off to to hardly anything google microsoft and, and any of the other search engines their job becomes now not to answer what you've asked, but to try and interpret what you really mean, which is really hard to do. Mm, yeah, the fact that it works so seamlessly, unbeknownst to the user, the, the complexity that goes on in the background is quite a testament yeah. to the whole, the brilliance of it. Maeve, um, do you want to, you probably know a lot more about that that research paper than myself or Dave do. Yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting one. Like you said, Dave, when you introduced, um, you know, the topic of search, Google and the whole search kind of world is relatively new, but it's it's evolving super, super quickly. And it's all led by consumers. It's all led by how people actually behave. So the way people are kind of interacting with search has been kind of developing through their experiences. And like previously, we would have seen just kind of, you know, direct kind of keywords where people are expecting mm. um, something very specific uh, back. It's much more kind of interactive now and it's much more um, uh, predictive now. So people are actually, you know, really impatient and they're really kind of demanding of what they're expecting when, when they search for something online. 
Um, and this is this whole kind of messy middle narrative mm. where it's not a, a linear kind of purchase journey like we're, we're all kind of used to that traditional kind of um, funnel. There's actually a huge amount of kind of um, noise in the middle where somebody is triggered by something and they, you know, kind of have spent some time online, multiple different kind of search journeys over a period of time. And what they interact with in that messy middle will really determine what they ultimately go for and how they ultimately convert. So there's a huge amount of kind of not to get too too into it, but um, kind of expansive exploring kind of territory mm. where you're just kind of, you know, um, looking around, browsing, and then more redactive kind of evaluating where you're kind of comparing and you're kind of um, whittling it down. And people go through that loop over and over again, depending on, you know, what ultimately will trigger them to to make that purchase. So there's a huge kind of space in the middle for brands to interact with and data points to mm-hmm. to interact with where search becomes that kind of messy, messy middle. I read it a while ago and um, just even in terms of how, you know, people, I think sometimes when we think about performance, we forget the people side of it and, and we got algorithms and, and data and machine learning. So, but actually I thought it was really interesting because, you know, I probably used to do it myself typing, searching for cheapest, cheapest and cheapest isn't best. So I think there was a kind of crossover, yeah. I don't know when it was, but 10 years ago that we actually... Yeah best started to replace the term instead of cheapest. So again, that has huge implications for brands. And it's quite an interesting space because like cheap prices is often quite interesting because only, you know, in any category, one person is going to be the cheapest or maybe two. And yet everybody can still compete on best because it's only half of that value equation. So there was that particular page that had all the graphs of the different markets was that each of the markets had a different kind of progression away from cheap. And in some markets, I think it was Germany in particular, it hadn't at all. So people are still using that keyword and mm. uh, Google is still serving the content behind it. So it is interesting to see that it's it's a, it's a market-specific thing. It's not just necessarily, mm. it's been yeah. decided that we move away from this globally. So um, Yeah, I'm always amazed at like, obviously the data that, I tend to say Google quite a lot because it is kind of like just a verb as well. So it's the single biggest data source in the world. And Dave, in your article, you mentioned that there's 3.5 billion, I think, searches every day, and which is huge. Yeah. What astonished me was that, 15% of searches are brand new searches made for the very first time, which seem incredibly high to me. When you think about Google yeah. as well, obviously it is only as good as the, the content or answers that it provides to people who are searching for things. So, you know, if you think about user experience, if, if I go on and the problem is when there's so much content available and Google has to search an ever expanding number of sites and content available, it's only as good as the data I get back. So if I'm not seeing, if I'm not seeing what I'm looking for in the top, you know, three or four results, or it's pushed too far down the page, then I'm going to start saying, you know, Google's not that good anymore. Just fine. It's it's just it's not giving me what I want. It's too hard to find what I want, and I'll go elsewhere. So the article talked about Dave, which is quite interesting about. You know, Google, I think you said it uses somewhere like 200 data points every time a search is initiated. And yeah. this allows Google to actually use some context to ensure that the, the answers or the recommendations that it serves to me are right. So a lot of this data is inferred, as you said, and Google are joining the dots behind in the background, um, incredibly sophisticated to create a deterministic profile of me or the user. So, for example, if we think about just for people listening, if I, for example, are searching for car insurance, what type of things are going on in the background? What type of data is being used to um, kind of build a profile of who I might be just so they can make sure that I get the right uh, queries to response to queries? So um, there's kind of two main shifts that have kind of empowered Google, I guess, to to serve very highly relevant information to every kind of query that happens in real time. And those two shifts are kind of the volume of data that's available in the world now and the kind of power of those computer processors to actually interpret that data. So uh, you've already mentioned kind of how much uh, new searches are available every day. So Mm -hmm. you can imagine the amount of different signals and data points to, to kind of mine through. And 
an interesting kind of stat, I suppose, that, that I find fascinating is that when we think about our smartphones, which, you know, everyone is using mm. more than they probably want to, smartphones actually have a stronger processing power than the computers that NASA sent astronauts into the moon with. Mm. So you can imagine in your pocket how kind of powerful those devices are. So all the data that's available in the world, they're able to kind of interpret it and, and use it with machine learning to, to serve up something um, relevant. So if there's one thing Google is not short of, it is data. There's um, nine products that Google own with over a billion daily users. So um, when we're mining through people's search behaviors um, in a kind of compliant way, some of the signals that you can take into consideration are really trying to figure out who the person is, where they are in the world, and kind of what they're actually looking for. So the types of signals to kind of build up a really nice picture of who somebody is would be things like their age, whether they're male, female, their demographic, what kind of house they live in, you know, do they have a family? If you're particularly looking for kind of car insurance, you might be looking at whether they already have a car, what's their household income, what their job is, you know, what's their kind of daily commute, that kind of thing. You can build up a really nice profile um, with signals around that. You're also looking at kind of where they are in the world, so where they live, where they're searching from, what kind of device they're using. Are they on the go or are they in an office on a laptop? What time of day it is, what time of the year it is, and ultimately kind of trying to figure out what they're actually looking for. So what's their search behavior telling you? What kind of websites are they browsing? What other purchases that they've made in the past? What kind of content are they watching online, um, you know, on YouTube or, mm. or other websites across the, the ecosystem? What kind of articles are they reading? So tons and tons of signals to kind of um, build up a nice profile with. And then also kind of comparing that journey with other users who've made very similar journeys um, in the past and ultimately purchased current journeys and trying to uh, kind of match that up and predict uh, future purchases from you. Hmm. Dave, do you want to add in anything there? So from an advertiser point of view or some yeah. an agency background point of view, all this information and this data that's available. Yeah, it's so, incredible, actually. It is. And you got a kind of a pretty good idea of all the different things that we can target um, and, and use from Mave there. We use all of this data for pretty much every client and any account that, that uses audience data is going to see an improvement in metrics pretty much across the board because you can positively target and negatively target those people. So just... To give two examples, the insurance clients, the insurance example that you gave uh, a minute ago, Dave, using, uh, we can use basic demographic data. Even the most basic demographic data could be really important to them. So, mm -hmm. for example, you could target drivers of an older, less risky cohort or, or negatively target the younger generation or even getting in front of your own customers as they shop around for a new insurance brand just as their renewal time is coming up. So that plus all of those signals that may have went through, super important and useful for us. To give a B2B example, you know, sometimes it's, it's not good enough just to get a sale. We have some clients that have goals setting, could be 250 or in some cases, 1,000 plus seats of their software from each individual sale. So we've used de detailed demographics to help them target companies with 10,000 plus employees. So mm -hmm. suddenly the, the $30 CPC, which sounds really, really expensive, um, or even the $1,000 or $2,000 CPA is actually very good value when you yeah. consider the size of the price. And then you throw in LinkedIn targeting on Microsoft as well, and you can you can add, run a full account-based marketing strategy with your paid search. And this was impossible two or three years ago, even. I'm not sure when detailed demographics came out, maybe. I think it was probably around then, but it's come a long way and it's just mm. getting better and better. So, Yeah, and it's a really interesting point because all that data, and I think sometimes you forget that because I use like the products that Google provide to me, which are all free, like from maps to, you know, to even my, my Gmail and obviously the kind of search trend data that the, the user behavior provide these incredible products. And then kind of they have that data and it, it's in the background working because they know quite a lot about me. So, but data privacy is a really hot topic at the moment, just generally in our industry. And I think 
again, to that point, I don't think maybe possibly uh, users are aware of just how much data, not specifically Google, anybody has them, even the agencies or how much data is available, how much data they leave behind, the fingerprint that they leave. And in the article you talked about GDPR, Dave, so like that, that was initially brought in to, to protect the user, I think, and it was supposed to make the online experience better for users. But in reality, it's kind of done, I don't think it's done much at all because all you do is, I know certainly my instance is that when I go to a website, I literally just don't even read anything, just go accept all, accept all. It's, it's, if anything, it's made the user experience worse um, from a consumer point of view. And when you think about what it was supposed to do, it's kind of good corporate citizenship. It was supposed to act as a deterrent. But then you think about fines. So, you know, a $50 million fine for any of the big tech companies is literally just a drop in the ocean. So I don't think it's going to act as a deterrent as such. So in my point of view, I think while it kind of maybe its heart was in the right place and its intentions were kind of good. It hasn't made the online experience better for users and it's not much of a deterrent for any of the big companies. So, and Dave, you talked about GDPR specifically and, and kind of you had a nice phrase yeah. there in the article. You said that if anything, it's kind of acted as a tax on small businesses. Can you just talk to me about what you meant by that? Yeah, I mean, in theory, it is a great idea, isn't it? But just going back to what you said there, like a $50 million fine is uh, is a drop in the ocean for a big tech company, or not even a big tech company, even if it's a, a brand using people's data because mm. they can get fined too. But yeah, in reality, the websites that, that have had to go back and, and re-opt people in into their marketing campaigns, in some cases, wiping out, it could be five or 10 years worth of audience building. Um, you could be talking millions and millions of emails, all carefully segmented, removed mm. from your marketing over. Your, from your marketing capabilities pretty much overnight. So, uh, yeah, like I said, if you're a big brand, you can go back to market and reacquire that audience with paid media. And as a smaller brand, it's it's not so easy. So mm. it kind of hasn't really been uh, equal or fair in, in the way it was implemented. And I'm not sure there was any other way of doing it, you know, and so... Yeah. It is difficult. Yeah, it, it's tough, all right. Now, I know, as I say, it was the, the policymakers had the right intentions, but just I don't think it's worked. Yeah. I just don't think it's it's actually done what it what it set out to do. And when we talk, like when you think about all the data that we have available, which is sometimes scary, but like it is absolutely crazy that go like Google um, knows more about me than anybody else. It knows more than my GP might know about me, my friends, my family. You know, in some instances, probably knows more about me than I do myself because it can predict what I'm looking for or what I mean by things, even though I probably don't know myself. So, you know, we're talking about data and use of data. And again, I think there's a lot of miscommunication around this or actually misunderstanding. So I, I, there's a general belief that use of data is wrong. Use of data is not wrong. Misuse of data is wrong. And I think that's what, you know, the thing people think that, well, don't use my data. And users of online internet then think, well, if I if you can't use my data, you can't serve ads to me. And that's not true either. So actually all that use of data does it, in my opinion, and maybe you could say I'm biased, but I think it actually makes the user experience better because it, it means I get relevant ads. And I think that's a, the big thing. People think don't use my data and, and not use my data means I won't see any ads. That is not the case at all. So Maeve, when we think about the implications from, from your side, what are the type of things that Google are doing to protect user privacy, but also to allow you to, you know, provide really relevant, personalized content to people? What type of things are, are Google working on? Yeah, it's it's such a good point, Dave. Um, exactly. It's it's about using the data in a useful way. Um, you know, we want users coming back online um, using search as a way to help them in, you know, in their everyday lives and and connecting brands to to users where they're looking to purchase things. So there's definitely a shift in the industry that we all need to kind of address and work with, like you guys were just discussing, the shift towards privacy and, 
you know, there's there's ultimately there is mistrust out there and scrutiny is only really going to make us all kind of better at what we do. So it's not about kind of getting around it. It's about kind of working with it and, and adapting um, the industry. So I think the first thing to kind of say is that it's more relying more and more on using kind of contextual signals and machine learning. Uh, we can't rely on kind of uh, cookies anymore. Mm. Um, so it's about kind of interpreting what people are searching for and trying to predict what what they need is what we're really kind of working on. Uh, there is some new kind of tools and solutions, I guess, that Google is working on to kind of support customers in this new landscape. For example, there's a thing called a consent mode beta, which has recently become available for, for advertisers. So the consent mode beta allows you to um, adjust how your Google tag behaves based on the consent status of your users. So now that we're asking for consent from, from users, you can indicate whether consent has been granted for analytics and ads cookies. So the Google tags will dynamically adapt only using cookies for the specified purposes when that consent has been given by the user. So if consent hasn't been given, it kind of allows the machine to kind of better model further down the funnel to account for those potential data losses. So that's one example of a move in this space at the moment. Okay, great. And Dave, from your side of things, so obviously the way we used to, like I've read nothing but problems and agencies and people giving out about the removal of third-party cookies that Google announced this year. And in fairness, like we have two years notice on it. We had to fix it at some point, but it just seems that the industry doesn't want to fix it, um, even though it arguably will make for a, a better ecosystem for everybody. But from your point of view, thinking about the future with that announcement, removal of third-party cookies, what are the implications from advertisers uh, from the agency perspective, Dave? Well, it just means you, you really need to get your site sorted out, make sure that you're taking as much, that you're looking after your existing customers, getting that email data. Um, like you, you still come across websites where you have the ability to be signed in, but mm-hmm. you're not automatically signed in. Mm-hmm. And then you have to go and manually do that. All of those kind of things where without a cookie, it's not going to be possible. That's not really going to be an option anymore. So I think it's, it's multifaceted. It's not really just quick fix. Mm. It, it, there's, there's a number of things from web dev to having a solid CMS to making sure you're actually porting all of that data from your marketing back into your sales teams as well. So it's not going to be easy. I'm not going to say it's going to be easy, but there's definitely quite a lot that could be done in the next two years. Mm. And I mean, it's not even in the next two years. It's kind of now or yesterday would be yeah. better to, to get those things yeah. done. <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's coming and we just got to get on with it. Um, you know, but I think it's, I'm fairly positive about it because I think that the negativity yeah. around privacy and misuse of data and look, we're not going to go into it. We could do hours of, of chatting about that in the, on its own as a topic. So I think we'll figure it out and we don't need PII necessarily. We can, you know, anonymize data. We can still get some really nice insights and, and a return to, to context, I think is going to be really important. When we think about search, I think like, you know, every industry faces increased competition um, and yet when I think about search, Google has pretty much owned the search market for the last 20 years. Other people have come in. So it was, you know, anybody could come in and, and enter that business if they wanted to. And some pretty, pretty big companies did try and do it. Like there's lots of search engines tried and failed. Uh, Apple last week, I think it was last week, announced that they recently announced that they are planning to launch their own search engine. And this, like Apple don't do these type of things um, without thinking it through. So a couple of questions here. Like there's obviously an implication and, and Maeve, I'm going to give you a pass on that one because you probably don't want to talk about this, but Dave, I'll chat to you about this. So first of all, um, yeah. if reports are to be believed, Apple are going to walk away from multi-billion dollar deal with, um, you know, because Google won't be the preload on Apple device anymore. So they'll turn away lots of cash already. Um, they have a current partnership you know, obviously that that's money gone, but they they have plenty of money, so it's not it's not really going to bother them. But they hired Google's um, previous head of search, and I'm going to get this name wrong. I think it was 
John Giandria two and a half years ago. And you got to believe that two and a half years ago, he was hired to do this, to, to work on this project, even though that's not what, what, what he was hired. That's not what they said at the time, but you got to believe that's what they were looking at doing. So mm. the question, Dave, is like, how big is this news? And why do Apple think, I know you don't know, but just your opinion, why do Apple think that they're going to succeed where other people have failed? You know, they go big on privacy. I think that's something that they make a big deal about. So maybe... You know, is this likely to be a, a kind of an ad-free search product for people? What's their, Why do they think this is going to work? It's such a hard market to get into, I would have thought. It is. And I mean, just to start off the privacy bit, privacy is certainly going to be front and center for them. So even, I think it was March this year, they released an update to the Safari ITP. So that's their intelligent tracking prevention uh, privacy feature. And cookies basically for cross-site resources are now going to be blocked by default across the board. So privacy absolutely is front and center there. Um, but with regards consumers choosing Apple over other search engines, I, I don't know. First of all, it's kind of, we need to figure out how it's going to be put in front of them. So it's likely going to be a choice. So let's say you buy your new phone and you get asked and you switch it on for the first time. What do you want to use as your default search engine? So is it DuckDuckGo, Bing, Google, Apple? And people will already have their favorite. They'll already have the one they're used to. Mm. But it, it, might have, it might have the Internet Explorer effect where People will select Apple not knowing what that means, or they might conflate Apple search with Safari and think that's what they're selecting. And mm. and to be very honest, and if it's anything like the Apple Maps launch, I expect it'll take a few years to even catch Microsoft, let alone Google. So from a market share perspective. Yeah. Um we, we could be surprised, you know, like they did have, I think it was 50% of uh was it 50 percent of google search traffic came from apple devices in 2019 so that's not hmm. um that's not to be sniffed at you know that that is an important metric but let's see how they go with regards to the interface um and it'll have to be you know so much better than than apple maps was when it came out yeah and again that's kind of i know, I know they're completely different products but like they're just as complex as each other you know yeah so as, as advertisers we always welcome something new to test so we'll, we'll see how it goes yeah i mean i think uh, i mean Obviously, I'm not sure if Apple have their own search product. They're probably not going to offer you a, an option when you when you switch on the phone for the first time, which one you want. It'll come preloaded and that'll probably be it. Now, if you want to install a different one, that'll probably be fine. But most people won't bother. And I guess most people don't bother because, I mean, I think even myself, I mean, Google works. It works fine. The day it doesn't work fine, I'll start going, I'm not happy with the results I'm getting, but it works fine. So yeah. I don't have any reason to change it. And one of the examples when we think about why Google works is because, as I said, it's, it's expert in this area. It's been doing it for 20 odd years. So the legacy, the machine learns, the algorithms, they do take time to learn and to actually kind of operate efficiently. And they and they keep getting better. We know from all our um, machine learning campaigns that we do, and they'd be very basic in terms of, you know, when, in comparison to technology Google have. But machines take a little bit of time to learn. They get better with more data. Google has huge amount of data. It's always yeah. getting better. So Apple, I think Apple are a brilliant hardware company and um, their style, their design, that's what they do. This is all software. It's all back-end stuff. So am I wrong? What am I missing there? Are Apple not at a massive disadvantage coming into this space where they have no data? And, and as you say, it's going to take a while for this to learn, evolve, get efficient. Is this, what am I missing? What, <laughs> is it as hard, a bigger barrier to entry as I think, not having any data like Google have? Yeah, absolutely. It, it definitely is something that takes a lot of time. And even when you think about the things that, Apple would already have and the kind of data they already have, they have quite a lot of audio um, data mm. that they would have picked up over the years through True. Siri. And um, it's not necessarily going to be an advantage to them. They'll just have more data on people's personal questions that they, they use Siri for. So, yeah. you know, the time 
setting up timers, asking for weather, song choice. I'm not saying that's that's the entirety of voice search, but audio audio is an input method for myself personally. I'm still not really sold on it, and just the mechanics of it, it even compared to regular search yeah. on a mobile or a laptop screen, you can you can scan the first three or four results in a second or two with your eyes. Yeah, can you imagine listening to like three full gambling brand audio ads before getting the football score? Yeah. It's not going to. No, yeah, I, th- I think we got to figure out like connecting me and we'll touch that in a minute, I think. And and I was thinking that before, maybe, you know, because they have this audio, they've lots of data and experience in audio, maybe that their search was going to have one eye on that. But you're right. I mean, there's the stuff you can scan with your eye when you look, you know, five, six, you can do that instantly. Whereas I can't imagine listening to that one. We haven't quite figured out audio yet, but search has evolved quite a bit as we talked, as we mentioned earlier on. But when you look at where it might go, it then becomes really interesting as well, because um, you think about Amazon, for example, they're a direct competitor to Google in search when it comes to shopping. So a lot of people, Amazon is the de facto search engine for when you're shopping. So you go into Amazon, you search what you want. If you don't find it there, then fine, you might go back out and search at Google. But it really owns that kind of e-commerce search engine. That's Amazon's bag, that kind of deep specialist search. So that might evolve. The whole area of e-commerce is interesting. I read Spotify are partnering with TikTok to uh, in this space to, to kind of help brands create content in, in e-commerce. So when we think about, we know how brands get involved with Google, Dave, but, but when we think about new iterations of search like Amazon, for example, what does that mean for for brands or companies you work with? I know Amazon aren't here, but they w- they may well have yeah. an IE, a .ie soon enough. But what's the how big an impact is that search in that ecosystem? I think I think it's kind of important to take a step back and just look at the the ecosystem as a whole. So this year has seen an explosion in online shopping. Uh, obviously, lockdown accelerated that. On, online shopping became less of a luxury, more of a mm. necessity in some cases. As Benedict Evans put it, we've seen 10 years of growth in three months for e-com as a share of mm. retail. That's impossible to, it's, it's hard to even comprehend sometimes, but from a platform perspective, when you think about it uh, from a, a market share, Amazon is now, um, according to, to research I've seen anyway, 60% of people's first place to go search for something when shopping. For users, they obviously want the social proof, you know, they want to see what our customers have to say and not necessarily just what the brand says about itself, but for a search specialist, the, the UI of the Amazon Ads Manager is still quite primitive, mm. um, and it's not surprising they don't they don't give it much attention when you consider they still their their search ads they still stick that in the the revenue for that in the other category in their earnings reports. So we don't even know the exact number, but it was probably a little over five billion last quarter, mm. and that's five percent of their over, overall revenue. So you can kind of get an idea of how important search is for them. You know, it's not massively important yet. No, but having said that, that's that revenue figure is up. 50% year on year. So maybe they will start paying more attention uh, now to it, as it gets a bit bigger. But from a brand perspective, you asked about brands as well. So for certain brands and verticals, it's it's unavoidable. If you want to grow your market share, you have to be there. So for electronics, definitely. Um, FMCG, I mean, it depends on the brand, but maybe. Mm. Clothing, probably not. That's still going to be, you're still going to be going to your Googles or direct to site for that. So and then just going back to the shopping behavior itself, the expectations have changed too. So people want things instantly and they expect them instantly as well. And um, Amazon's Prime delivery is obviously a huge role there. That was successful in the US and the UK. And I actually use Prime now. I don't know if you've heard about that or used it before. It's basically two-hour delivery. It's, mm. it's phenomenal, but it's a bit of a novelty. And you, But you can see how things will go there if drone delivery takes off. Yeah, I yeah, think um, sure. Google, Google actually made a bit of a statement this year with regards to local search. They bought a Dublin-based startup called Pointing. I don't know if you've heard of them, Dave. No. Um, they're, 
Yeah, they basically allow small shops to scan all of their stock and uploads them directly onto their site. So now your you're basically your market is as big as your delivery capabilities. So that's huge for your kind of your smaller stores who would have been a bit um, they would have never dreamed of selling online. So mm. Google has essentially increased the overall size of the pie by betting on this area. So definitely very smart uh, yeah. investment. Um, and it was just, so that was the, the first two points. And the last point was on TikTok and Spotify. Um, yeah, I mean, that's going to open up Shopify to uh, even a massive audience. So even talking about social proof earlier, there's mm. nothing stronger than the social proof of influencers. And you now have... A million shops and merchants that, that can help create and run TikTok marketing campaigns directly in the Shopify platform. So it's obviously heavily skewed towards a younger, very young mm. demographic. But when you factor in hundreds of millions of highly engaged users, it's going to be a very interesting space. So that's something we'll be watching out for as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a hugely, hugely exciting space. And um, Maeve, th- we talked about connected homes a minute ago, and those that's going to grow. It's a trend that's going to grow, and partly because the products are so cheap, they're cheaper than, than speakers. Which um, so you get all the additional functionality as well as getting a speaker for your home a Bluetooth speaker. So well, how big is this? Dave mentioned a minute ago. It's kind of clunky in terms of the search in an audio ecosystem. Do you think it's going to change? Is audio search going to be a big trend, or in with the you know with all the connected homes, or is it, it's never? going to take off in the same way that kind of tech search did? Yeah, I think it's a, it's really an interesting area to kind of keep an eye on. And it's definitely one that, you know, has been around in industry as one to watch for a while. And it just hasn't quite kind of, I guess, come to fruition um, in the sense, I guess, of, of the opportunities that's there. Because I suppose, you know, kind of the holy grail of, of marketing is being able to predict consumers' needs. And I guess digital assistance, you know, integrated in the home, being uniquely placed to kind of provide that um, that assistance is is a big opportunity for for brands that we haven't quite kind of nailed yet, but I think there definitely is a, a huge opportunity there. So at the moment, um, you know, those connected devices are very much fulfilling that daily kind of assistive role. So mm. kind of mundane kind of tasks, you know, like making calls or playing music or mm. um, checking the weather, things like that. So not not a hugely useful for driving brand growth yet, but definitely when you think about how brands are always kind of looking for users who are in the market and in the right mindset to engage. They are looking to these digital assistants um, and how to kind of build them into their their marketing strategy in a more effective way. So I think brand integrations with digital assistants aren't really, you know, that exciting anymore. Mm. It's not really a differentiator. It's more about going beyond that and showcasing what people can actually do with those integrations. So, you know, kind of brands need to kind of be thinking about what role does the product or service play in a person's daily routine and how could it digital assistant integration support that routine. Mm. So for instance, I guess one of the the only kind of successful uh, integrations we've seen so far has been with Starbucks, uh, where people can kind of order their usual through the Google Assistant when they kind of wake up in the morning. So that's one example mm. of, of a successful integration. And I think we'll keep seeing um, more iterations of that, but it is a trend I think that isn't going away too soon. Mm. And, we, and we think about the old, the previous, well not the old, the, the Google search model, which is publisher-based, scrapes publisher content, text-based and and you know, then scrapes all that content and serves information back to the the person searching in an audio landscape. Because the growth in podcasts is phenomenal as well. So in the same way, we're seeing we're seeing growth in in content on every single platform. So audio content has grown enormously as well. I'm not sure does Google have capability in terms of scraping the audio ecosystem for content, and how does that work? Or will we see is a complete is it a completely new technology that just because you're brilliant at scraping visual and text based content, it doesn't transfer that easy into an audio landscape? Are there learnings? Is there is are Google doing much there or is it completely different? 
Yeah, it's a new area. It's not, um, I don't think it's, it's as advanced at all, obviously, as, as it is with text and kind of the traditional um, business model. But, you know, for instance, YouTube is the second largest search engine in the world. And currently, the way that operates is through scraping um, YouTube by titles and descriptions, but also mm. by content. So there is capabilities with all the things that we were talking about with machine learning to to um, use audio and to use video content um, in the same kind of way. It's just um, not progressed uh, to the same extent. But definitely with podcasts, I think there is a big opportunity there. There's certainly been you know teams at Google who are looking into prioritizing audio in the same way that it does with text and images and, and video and kind of trying to make audio content more searchable um, mm. and incorporate kind of podcast metadata into search results so i think it's definitely an area that we'll we'll hear more about um but it's just not quite there yet yeah and i, I guess again I'll, I'll give you a pass on this one but that's what when i was thinking about apple launch their search engine i was thinking well they have some capability in terms of audio that's what they're good at maybe they're starting to build some interesting capability in this space dave any thoughts on that and that in terms yeah. of the whole area of audio search and, and apple it, it is interesting to see Apple and Google, like Google podcast podcast app as well, is doing this too, that they're transcribing all these podcast episodes. So they obviously have that natively within the apps, but it'd be interesting to see where they pull that out. Is it possible to use it in other areas? It's it's hard to know, but I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's unlikely that they'll ignore it because podcasts are getting bigger and bigger, that they're not getting any smaller. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, it'd be unusual for either of them not to use it especially if, if apple are, are launching um a search engine they're they're certainly going to be using that so i don't see why google wouldn't as well yeah um for sure yeah it's just, I, I think about it and I go well, how would that even work you know scraping all that audio content but that's got to be easier to do than like some of the things they've done like obviously driverless cars is incredible i can't get my head around that so if they can crack that i'm sure they can, <laughs> yeah. they can crack um audio search and audio content obviously another big development in search is is visual search so the whole thing where you kind of search by picture and there's some quite basic you know some retailers have shop the look and you can you can search images and a couple of people have it it's very early on in its infancy at the moment so open question or maybe i'm going to start with you here visual is really big so it's probably i would imagine the next big development so what are google doing in this space is it is there anything you can tell us about is it an area of focus or priority within google yeah, I mean, it's certainly, I think, you know, if it's, if it's a trend in user behavior, it'll be looked at by, by Google. And, you know, there's definitely going to be um, development in this space, I think, from many different players. But I think people are very visual, very, very kind of image driven. So you do see in search behavior, you know, people are using images as kind of a starting point of action from kind of learning new skills or exploring ideas. They're kind of searching for things like DIY and how to and kind of using images as their kind of starting point. So Definitely a big opportunity. I think um, in terms of what we're kind of doing or what you'll see kind of Google doing in this space is, you know, at the moment, the Google Lens is the kind of solution where we're able to address user behavior in this uh, space. So at the moment, you can kind of see things like uh, using real world objects without relying on words to describe what we need. So, you know, if you're in a foreign country and you see an interesting building, you can, you know, use the snap a picture and use Google Lens to find Mm. that information and things like that. So it's a little bit more kind of um, experiential at the moment, but we are increasingly seeing um, features like style maps opening up the space for brands in this area. So, you know, you can see a piece of clothing or home decoration and then use the camera lens to to then see styles from other stores across the web or get mm. reviews or, or purchase information um 
there. So I think obviously the the players that are able to kind of work in this space are kind of like Pinterest and mm. you know Amazon and and Google, and you'll kind of see more um, opportunities for brands here. And obviously, then retailers are the ones that are kind of experimenting most here. So I think like ASOS and Wayfair, yeah. um, and even Argos and IKEA have all started kind of utilizing this and kind of building their own visual search kind of tools. So yeah, definitely an interesting space for both brands and and users. Yeah. Dave, a question for you. So given, like we've yeah. talked about quite a lot of, like we know where the market has been, but again, like anything else, the changes that are foot look like they're going to be like seismically different. So from an agency point of view and searches is your kind of key area of specialism, how do you stay on top of these things? How will the agency stay on top of all this, this type of, you know, audio search, image search, visual search? What are you doing in this space or how can you help it, clients? It, it's all down to testing, testing things as soon as they become available. So, um, yeah, Google works with alphas and betas. Depending on the market, we'll we'll always try and get out there um, and test things before anyone else. You tend to see cheaper CPCs. You tend to see before kind of everyone gets on board. Things tend to be better for the brand from a purely PPC uh, metric perspective. Mm. Um, but just even on visual search, I think it, it is an interesting area. It's not been one that we've we, we've tested a little bit on on travel and retail clients, but I think. Depending on the vertical, you mightn't have a choice. You might have to test these things. Mm. And I'd love to see Maeve's point earlier about the well, phones in general getting better and better mm. to the point where I think it was the iPhone 12 last week now has that same technology that iPads had, the LiDAR technology. So AR is going to start to be more and more important. Yeah, And I think, I, I don't know, I'd, I'd love to see that in search. I mean, why not? If you search now, the, the example I talked about in that article was the, the shark example, where if you search for Great White Shark, you can view it now in 3D. So oh, you can yeah, pop yeah. it up and you can see what it would look like in your living room. It's actually yeah. really cool. My young lad, my, um, my little fella loves that. He has me heartbroken yeah. saying, Daddy, sh- Daddy, show me a bear. <laughs> Daddy, show me show me a horse. It drives me mad, but he loves it. Yeah. Um, but like a more practical example of that would be someone like Ikea. So if you've used their place app, it's um, you can get an idea of what your furniture would look like in your living room. What would that be like in search? Would it be the case where you search for something and you start seeing things you're living? I, I don't know. Yeah. You know, kind of. Yeah. It's a bit there. It's, uh, it's or, or even definitely sh- exciting. Shopping ads like. Yeah, it is. It is. And even shopping ads, if you were the model instead of someone else, I don't know if you'd actually want that. Depending on yeah. No, that's, that, that, that actually that definitely wouldn't work because it looks great in the model. And then when you get it, you're like, oh, I don't look like that model. <laughs> so no, I don't think that's going to help. Exactly. People will just not be buying anything. Um, yeah, it's like it's really yeah. exciting space. Maybe just going to ask you a quick question. Like, if it's quite complicated, and obviously Google are have lots of people and working on betas all the time. Have you any resources available for clients, or particularly maybe for smaller clients who just don't, you know, not not tiny tiny clients, but for smaller clients who kind of don't really understand this space and looking for a bit of help and even i love that idea about like dave's talking about testings you got there's definitely advantages to be had for getting an early and testing things so what type of resources or small business resources do google have to help people in this space yeah absolutely um so i would suggest going to thinkwithgoogle.com and that's kind of what i would refer to as like the hub of uh, information and inspiration, I guess, of what other people are doing in this space. So um, you can get kind of market specific or or look at Google or kind of global trends mm-hmm. here. But it's a really nice space for any brand to to kind of explore and see what um you know big brands are doing, but also smaller yeah. brands. Um, and also kind of keep up to speed with consumer trends. Lots of really interesting kind of thought pieces and articles there. And then also more information around specific kind of Google products and strategies that might be beneficial for your business. So thinkwithgoogle.com is a really good kind of one-stop shop. 
Excellent. Right. We have gone slightly over time again, as we always do, but that was great. We could probably talk for another you know, hour or two about this, but, um, <laughs> and, you, and it's hard because you're just kind of, you can really only scratch the surface. I mean, we could get into a huge amount of detail, but I want to say thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Maeve. Thanks for dialing in today. No problem at all. Thanks so much for having me. No really problem. It. And thanks. Thanks, Dave O'Reardon. Thanks for joining us today. Hope you stay safe and keep well. Yeah. And great yeah, great to talk. I hope to see you again soon in the office. And just want to say yeah. thanks to our partners in Irish Times Media Solutions. So until two weeks' time, see you later. This is Inside Marketing, brought to you by Dentsu Aegis Network and Irish Times Media Solutions.